0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and your host for today. And I'm joined by my co-host and fellow paediatrician, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. Welcome, Anne. Hi, Lex. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info podcast. So today we're talking about learning difficulties. They're really common in our community and they often prompt a referral to a paediatrician. In my general paediatric practice, I often get a referral like this. A 10-year-old girl who's struggling at school, has low self-confidence, is starting to refuse to go to school and the parents aren't sure what to do and where to start. We're going to try and unpack that and talk about that today, Anne.
1: Yeah, and sometimes we get kids who are having problems earlier, so that might be at kindergarten or when they're starting prep, they're having difficulty with those basics like learning to read or recognising letters, or even with attention in the classroom, so being able to participate in the learning can be a flag that something might be going on.
0: Absolutely. There are so many reasons why a child might have difficulty learning. And today we're joined by Associate Professor Jill Saul who's a Senior Paediatrician at the Centre for Community Child Health here at RCH.
1: And apart from being an incredible paediatrician, has also been a great mentor to both Lexi and I over the years. So great to have you here to have this chat today,
2: Jill. Lovely to be here, thank you.
0: So let's start by talking about what learning difficulties are. They're really common and the phrase learning difficulties is all-encompassing. But there are so many different reasons why a child might have learning difficulties. Jill, how
2: do you think about it or how do you approach children with learning difficulties? You're right, it is a type of catch-all phrase and there's many meanings behind it. So I tend to think of children with learning difficulties in several different groups. One of them is a group of children who have developmental variation around the age of starting school where if you're a little bit behind with your language or if your memory isn't quite up to other children of that age... Or if you have got some motor skills which aren't as great, for example, with drawing and writing, you might struggle in those first few years of school, but eventually will catch up. Mm -hmm. So that's one group with the developmental variation, which is pretty normal at this sort of four, five, six age group. Then there's another group of children who might have some medical conditions which might be associated with learning problems. Severe epilepsy is an example, and very, very small premature children sometimes have we expect them to have some sort of learning difficulties when they get older and some developmental conditions like autism spectrum disorder or ADHD then there's another group where there's more environmental type of thinking that that might affect learning if a child is intensely anxious f- f- about something then brain isn't available for learning or if they're in a very sort of vulnerable social situation where you know it's not easy to get to school you mightn't have all the right equipment or the right clothes and that 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 is another uh, group of children, and then there's a there's the other group of children which I think about as those children with specific learning uh, difficulties or disabilities, where their brain function is such that they their brain works in a slightly different way, and um, we have to understand what is behind that brain dysfunction to call it uh, learning disabilities. And there's another group which I should put into the developmental group. And that's the kids with a relatively low intelligence within the normal range of intelligence, but at the lower end, what we might call slow learners, and you expect them to have some difficulty learning. And because there's this such huge spectrum of reasons why children don't learn, it's really difficult for teachers to understand each individual child and the differences between children. So you need to be fairly systematic in the way you think about it.
1: Yeah, when you mention all of those different possible causes and you think of a classroom full of, you know, 25 up to 30 kids, you start to get a sense of how complicated
2: this can be for individual children and for
1: teachers as well.
2: I think that's true. And I think that, you know, I think we've come a long way in the education system overall in having, you know, virtually all children going to preschool where... Preschool teachers are very well trained in a developmental approach to how children learn and behave and play and develop in their emotional and social skills. And there's there's much stronger transition plans to school now where if preschool teachers have concerns, then there's some discussion with the school about what those concerns are. I remember in my early days of paediatrics, we'd sometimes try and talk to teachers of children in the first year of school which I'll probably call preps, although I know it's called foundation nowadays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Prep teachers would say, oh, no, I don't want to know anything about this child. I want to wait and find out for myself. And my heart always sank in that situation because, A, it would take a long time, at least six months, and, B, you always build on previous knowledge. Absolutely. First of all, the parents' knowledge about their child – and then other skilled professionals who've been involved with their children, such as preschool teachers. Absolutely. So I think that's changed a lot. And I think that education departments around the country are much more tuned into children with learning difficulties whereas in the past they've been mainly tuned into children with more severe developmental disabilities.
0: It often still takes a while for learning difficulties to get recognised once a child starts school. It's not often not during prep or foundation
2: that learning difficulties come up as an issue for parents or teachers. It does take some time, and children learn in very different ways and along different pathways in that first year of school. Nevertheless, by the time you get to the end of foundation year one, so children... Been five, turning six. You know, a normally developing child who's learning a- appropriately will understand all the letters of the alphabet. Will know their names and their sounds. Will will have learnt some of the small words in the English language, like the and and. Will be writing their own names and and you know writing most letters of the alphabet too, and have a good sense of what numbers mean. So if your child is getting to the end of the first year of school and they're really behind in those very fundamental foundation skills for literacy, that's learning to read, and numeracy, which is learning about counting and mathematics, then that's a a cause for concern and we should be doing something about it rather than waiting for more time.
0: A lot of people ask me, why do paediatricians, why do doctors get involved with this? Um, and what can we add as general paediatricians? And you obviously see a lot of children with yeah. learning difficulties. What do you think we have to contribute or add in this space?
1: One is really understanding the overall health and wellbeing of a child and making sure that that is optimised. I often talk to families about kids being ne- needing to be ready to learn to their best And in order to do that, they need to be well and healthy. And that might mean physically well and healthy. It also means that they're emotionally well and healthy. Some of the things you talked about before, Jill, what's happening in the home environment, additional pressures might be there that are actually putting that child in a position where it's really hard for them to show up and learn. Um, And then on top of that, we know there's actual conditions. And some of those Jill has talked about already that affect the brain and are part of the the list of things that can cause difficulties with learning. So they're some of the roles that we have as a paediatrician and then as an advocate alongside the parent and often talking with teachers and parents and helping to keep those conversations going and making sure that the child is getting what they need.
0: Absolutely. And I often go back to basics and I talk to the family about sleep, which is incredibly important because you can't concentrate if you haven't had a good night's sleep. Um, Nutrition as well and uh, physical activity. So they're really important um, foundations, as well as checking a child's vision and hearing.
1: Yeah. And then getting back to the big list of causes that we heard at the start, Jill, reasons why children might have trouble learning. One of the things you talked about was what we call specific learning difficulties, which we probably understand as a term um, as health professionals, but can be really tricky for parents to sometimes get their head around. And that includes things like dyslexia, which is a Term that I know is much more commonly heard in the community and understood. Can you tell us a bit more about those?
2: Yes, so specific learning disabilities, or sometimes called specific learning disorder, is a is an overall phrase which means that a child, a child's ability to learn academic skills is behind that for other children of the same age. Um, it assumes a an an intelligence in the normal range. Yes. It assumes that there is no sensory difficulties, as you mentioned, like hearing or vision, and that there's no major mental health problems like severe anxiety or other emotional problem that might get in the way of learning. So given all of that is within the normal range, these children are not learning as they are expected to. And having come to that overall thinking, then it's divided into more specific groups, so that a child who has difficulty learning to read is described as, that's described as dyslexia, which is really just a Latin name for can't, difficulty reading. Yes. And then those who have difficulty with mathematical concepts, is a really complicated word called dyscalculia. And then there's children who have difficulty with writing, and that's called dysgraphia. I don't like using those words very much because I think they mean a lot of different things to different people. I think dyslexia is sometimes used as the catch-all phrase for all children with learning difficulties, and it's not helpful. It's better to say, my child has difficulty learning to read, and then try and understand the reasons why. And for those who do have learning problems, reading is by far and away the most common problem. Probably about 80% of children with learning difficulties have difficulty learning to read. Right. And in my experience, children who have difficulty learning to read almost inevitably have difficulties learning to spell Yes, and very often have difficulties writing as well. And uh, specific mathematical difficulties are much less common. I I want to add one more thing about learning difficulties, which I think is worth emphasising, and that is that we know that children with language delay are at risk for reading difficulties, doesn't matter what the cause of the language delay is.
0: So for people listening, if your child has had a speech delay that was picked up by the maternal child health nurse um, or they'd seen a speech pathologist in those preschool years, they're the kids we have to keep an extra eye on when they start school, looking for any concerns about learning or literacy difficulties with their
2: reading, spelling, writing. That's right. Uh, it, it's not inevitable, but those children are We call it increased risk.
1: Yeah. And that's because this is, we think, or understand what we'd call a neurodevelopmental difference. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the way that child's brain is wired, if you like, that makes it challenging for them to
2: understand and learn words. That's correct. And this is also a reason why the way reading is taught in schools ought to cover a wide range of processes. It's not just it's not just what's sometimes called a phonic approach like the sounding out approach. It's not just what's sometimes called a whole word approach where it's a visual approach. Look at the whole world word and remember what it looks like and remember what it sounds like. There really needs to be a mixed approach because typically developing children learn in different ways but these kids that we're talking about now often have a very specific difficulty in one way of learning. So one way that foundation teachers can help all children, of whom about somewhere up to 15% are going to have some difficulties in in learning, um, by teaching in a variety of different ways. So looking out for those strengths and teaching to strengths as well as understanding what the difficulties are is really critical for these children, particularly because gaining self-esteem and competence and self-confidence to keep on learning is critical
0: So let's move on to talk about if you as a parent or a teacher suspects or is concerned about a learning difficulties,
2: um, how do we approach this? Well I think parents should always start with the school and with their with their child's teacher. And this is where the once term or once every semester sort of parent-teacher night when you've got about five or ten minutes and there's 20 parents waiting in the queue. Yes.
0: We now call it speed dating. Speed dating, (laughs)
2: yes. (laughs) This is not the time to have that big conversation. So I think that if you're really worried, it's better to find a sit-down time with the teacher um, to really discuss the issues as you see it as a parent and to see what the teacher has noticed. Teachers know an enormous amount about children And if you just have the conversation with them, you can learn a lot about their perspectives, as well as your own perspectives as a parent. So I think that's always the starting point. And it might be at that stage, you might say, well, look, let's concentrate on this particular approach, and we'll do it this way at school. And these are some things that you can do at home, and we're both working in the same direction. And let's have a look how he or she is going in the next few months.
0: So really the partnership between the parents, the family and the school is exceptionally important in the first instance. Exceptionally important.
2: And, you know, if it's an older child, having the child involved in those conversations and what they think about their learning is really important as well. If it gets to the stage where there's not much progression, the schools might have some particular programs that they tend to use with children who have been delayed with their, say, with their reading and writing. And these can be helpful for some children, but I always think a standardised program will only help a percentage of children with learning difficulties. Every child's different. Absolutely. And so um, that's where further assessment needs needs to be done to find out what specifically is behind this difficulty. Now, the school may use their psychologists and speech pathologists to do more formal assessments of the child's both cognitive or ability, which is really their overall intelligence and they might do some specific academic uh, testing to see exactly where the child is at with various aspects of reading and writing and maths. Speech pathology assessment is can be very important because, lang- as I said before, language delay and language difficulties is, is, a, is a strong component of reading difficulties. But resources are inevitably a bit limited with that. Not every child who has a reading problem is going to be assessed by yeah. the school psychologist and the, the resources of the school psychologist are often uh, given to those with more severe needs at, on the developmental disability scale. Yeah, It's always worthwhile talking to your GP and some of the things that Lexi mentioned before about general health and vision and hearing, um, You know, the GP can help you to think through those things and get those things tested. But then I think... Um, whether or not people believe that paediatricians should be involved in (laughs) children with learning disabilities. The fact is that about a third, at least, if not close to a half, of referrals that come to paediatricians out, general paediatricians out in the community, are about children's development and behaviour, including learning. And paediatricians are well... Um, trained to think about the child as a whole, as Anthea said before, but to think more specifically too about the sort of neurodevelopmental pathways that could lead to difficulties in learning. And then if you have seen a paediatrician, then the paediatrician joins that partnership with the child and family and the school to really try and work out what the problems are and then what to do about it because that's the critical thing it's not a lot of children get assessed and assessed and assessed yes (laughs) so we know lots about what the assessments tell us but if it doesn't go to the next stage of what does that draw our attention to about the, the way the child can best be helped that's that then becomes the critical aspect so if
0: a child can't get assessed through the school they don't have the resources but the parents and doctors and team feel that it is worth getting assessments where do parents go then?
2: Well, I, I think pediatricians are a good start, which you, you get to via your GP. Yeah. I just emphasise that more and more assessments don't always tell us what we need to do. And sometimes going to a pediatrician who's well-trained in this area, you can gain a lot of information that directs a management plan Yes, uh, without necessarily having what might be nice to have all of those extra assessments. But is not very accessible because of the cost implications for a lot of families.
0: And I think choosing the right assessment for the right child is really important. So I think just having someone think about what assessments need to be done by an educational psychologist or what assessments would help with by a speech pathologist. And I think one of the important points you mentioned, Jill, if an assessment is done about a child's learning it's really important to understand that assessment and understand what those recommendations are because there's no point in getting assessments done that just get put in the cupboard or in the filing cabinet.
1: And how often do we get kids that do come to see us in clinic perhaps and they've got a raft of paperwork because they've had assessments done and our role is really to actually look through it all and try and, you know, make head or tail of it.
0: And help
2: the family understand it. Yeah, this is is a a very big part of my practice. The number of families, parents that I've seen over the years who say, yes, my child's had this assessment, but I've never seen it. Or they've seen it, but they don't understand it. Or they've seen it and they've tried to understand it, but they don't think the school has taken it on board. Or they think the teacher this year has taken it on board, but the teacher next year doesn't. So I work very hard with my families to either have a right to see and hold a copy of the assessment of their child. They have a right to understand it. And I think some of the language used in those assessments is really difficult to understand. And as doctors, we have to be careful about that too. But many of the terms that are used in psychology and speech pathology assessments are are really, you know, highly professional terms. So one of our roles is to help families understand that language. But, you know, the most important thing, as you say, are the recommendations. And those recommendations are not just for now, not just for the next six months, but they will, will be relevant for a number of years, so advocating for your child at school from year to year is really critical. Absolutely, and I think as
0: doctors, whenever we make recommendations or management decisions, we have to ask ourselves: Why do we treat? Why do we want to intervene um, for this child with learning difficulties? What are the reasons that you explain to parents that it's important
2: to actually give the child some support? Well. I personally think that in today's modern age when most children in the world in the world live in urban environments that learning to read is an absolutely critical skill uh, for surviving in an in the urban world. So learning to read is fundamental to so many other aspects of learning and if you haven't learned the fundamentals of reading by about the age of eight the gap, Capability gap starts to widen a great deal, it takes a lot of resources to catch up after that, whether it be time or expertise or money or whatever else you might think of as a resource. It takes a lot, so that's why trying to understand early what the problems are and getting going with some management of it is important. So, it's important to learn to read, but it's incredibly important uh, for a social and emotional well-being of the child too, yes. to be part of their group to join in. So that sense of capability and confidence that comes with learning is really important. But again, I'll go back to the point of if a child is struggling to read for perfectly good reasons then we need to also look for the child's strengths to say, well, look, this pathway is difficult for you, but look what you can do here. And
1: I often talk with families about the idea of find somewhere for your child to shine. Yes. And they're walking through a system or, you know, travelling through a system that is quite generic in a lot of ways and so unfortunately it is really geared up for the more typical learner a lot of the time and for children who have more typical kind of strengths and interests. So it can take a bit of extra work to really navigate things and find a way for children to do things differently that's going to suit them better.
0: Absolutely. So when we're thinking about a child who's been diagnosed with a specific learning difficulty, such as dyslexia, what are the approaches that the school might take and what can you do as a parent?
2: What the teachers can do is to develop an individual education plan or an individual learning plan, which targets extra resources as much as the school can afford or or has available to them, around the difficulties but uses the child's strengths so that if for example um, listening to instructions or always getting instructions on paper by reading that can be replaced by using visual cues of one showing what needs to be done or drawing pictures of it and then um, some modifications to the amount of work is sometimes important so if a child with learning difficulties is supposed to get through exactly the same amount of uh, Literacy-type work. So if they can't read or spell, but they've still got to learn ten spelling words by every Friday, that's a real demand. So reducing the demand without making it so overt that the child feels too much singled out is important. And and similarly, doing lots and lots and lots and lots more of the same thing is not going to help these children. So they shouldn't be doing three times as much homework as the other kid in the class. It's just going to exhaust them, and it's going to exhaust their parents and it's not going to achieve very much. But then the other things that the parents can do at home is basically read to their children. <laughs> That's it's fundamentally mm. read From a very early from age. From a very early age and, and for, particularly for children with reading difficulties until quite an older age. Yes. Because what the kids suffer with with reading difficulties is, is that they can't get involved with books that, that their overall intelligence and their age and their interests... Would like them, mm. you know, where, where they'd like to be involved. So if they can't read Harry Potter books, they don't want to go and read John and Betty type books. Yes. Absolutely. So, par- and that's why audio books have actually become so. Yeah, audi- audio books are really helpful, but also parents reading what I call chapter books. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, at Whether it's at bedtime or some other time, but reading them together, letting the, you know, asking the child to do a little bit and then I'll do the next bit. So you're sharing the load. And talking about the story, trying to help the child to understand what the wonderful things about reading and what you can get out of reading. It can also be really
0: helpful just to incorporate language and reading and writing into everyday activities. So thinking about you know getting your child to read the ingredients when you're cooking together from a recipe, getting them to write down the shopping list and recognising the words as you go to the supermarket can be really helpful. And I know with my children... Um, With
2: their maths, they've really learnt their six times table very well because we watch AFL. Yes, setting the table, you know, some mathematics in setting the table. Also, you you mentioned recipe books before. I think cooking is a fantastic activity about learning. So there's sort of Maths. mathematical principles yep. of half and this and that and the other. There's organisational principles, there's reading to be done, there's setting goals and seeing what comes out of the oven at the end of the whatever yes. you've tried to bake. I think cooking is a fantastic activity for, for, for learning. The other thing that parents can do at home is get a tutor to help the child with a particular area of learning. So this is where you really do need to understand what the reading difficulty is, not just use a generic standardized program, but to try and find a tutor who can can help the child with what we call ex- what's called explicit teaching of certain reading requirements. And a few hours of explicit teaching is a lot better than hours and hours and hours and hours of generic teaching which doesn't meet the needs of that particular child's learning problem.
1: So I want to talk a little bit more about tutoring, Jill, because I know it's something that families um, can find helpful but at the same time it might be very costly for families and sometimes I've come across situations where children are doing a huge amount of tutoring which has actually added a real burden and stress and it becomes a source of argument and I think further, you know, the self-esteem goes down rather than up. So what sort of advice do you give families about that?
2: Well, I agree that the cost can be difficult for some families and there are different ways of of, um, getting a tutor. There are some standardised tutoring programs in the community which might be helpful for some children but might not be. So I would get parents to explore some of those standardised programs which if they are in groups are sometimes a little bit cheaper Yes. and and try and get a feel for whether that particular approach is going to be helpful to their child or you might try it for a few months and see if it works. And if it doesn't work... Stop it and Stop. try something else. Mm. Yeah, or there are ways of finding um, individual tutors, which will be more expensive but may make a bigger difference to the child. So it's, that's balancing between slightly more costly but more effective tuition. The other thing is that um, tuition doesn't have to be, you know, every week for six years. I'm a great believer in doing, say, si- a six month block and then having a break and. Y- seeing how the child uses that increased knowledge and information and how they're applying it on an everyday basis in the classroom. Then you sit back and think, okay, now what's going on? You talk to the teacher. Is there another area that needs some strengthening? You might go back and have some specific tutoring around that particular area. So it should be flexible, uh, not permanent. The specific explicit teaching which uses information about how the child learns is the most effective type of tutoring, I believe.
0: And I think you mentioned that the partnership between the parents and the school is vitally important. So often I would recommend parents speak to the school teacher or the head of special learning about tutoring. How do they find a tutor? What might be appropriate? And having those links between the tutor and the school is also really helpful. I think we shouldn't work in silos here. Yeah. Oh, a very important
2: point. Mm-hmm.
1: And I want to ask Jill about some of the other Fixes or remedies that are out there. So, you know, obviously everyone's got Google at their fingertips and your child's learning. I think as a parent there are very few things that are more important. You know, it's incredibly stressful and worrying for parents if their child is not learning. And so parents, you know, jump online and they have a look and there's all kinds of things out there that are being marketed as solutions from, you know, different types of visual aids or glasses through to, um, you know, brain training things on the computer what sort of recommendations do you have for parents about these things?
2: I think it's important for them to sift through that promotional type of activity to see what is the underlying evidence that that does make that that makes a difference. And when you for, for a lot of the sorts of programs that you've just mentioned, Anthea, there's virtually no evidence that it that it does make a difference. yeah, and some of those programs are extremely expensive, and that works on the premise that people think, well, if it's expensive, it must be good. Well, that's not necessarily the case in in these areas. And I think in any area of life and in any area of health too, where diagnoses are not as precise, and that's certainly true for learning difficulties compared to something like diabetes or heart attack. We don't have a blood test, we don't don't have
0: have a brain scan.
2: That's right. So it's a bit imprecise and where the management plan isn't specific like take this tablet or have this operation, that's going to fix you, Um, it's rife to be coming at come in the sides from these people who promote all sorts of things and some of those people who promote genuinely believe that their product or pathway is absolutely fantastic but they haven't gone down an evidence-based pathway to actually demonstrate that to other people so it's an ongoing conversation.
1: And when you say anecdotal evidence Jill that's just for people listening that's the idea that they're reading you know, perhaps stories or one-off examples or case studies where someone says, this worked for me, as opposed to um, a scientific sort of study where you take a whole lot of people and you try something out and then you have a look and see, does it help everyone in a a way that we can prove that it's really likely to make a
0: difference? Yeah, exactly. In our show notes, we're going to link some really good resources. Um, What are the resources that you recommend, Jill, for parents to look at? about learning difficulties to understand them better but also to look for tutors or the
2: evidence that we've been talking about? SPELD is the Specific Learning Difficulties Association in Victoria and OzSpeld is the one Australia-wide and they have some terrific resources that are available for teachers and for parents so looking on their websites is really helpful. Um, SPELD will do some assessments too although that's not, in, that's not inexpensive. Um, learning Difficulties Australia is another broad organisation which also has a lot of resources and it has a find a tutor uh, access on the website so you can dial in where you live and how old your child is and what the problems are and they'll bring up a list of tutors. I think what Lexi said before about going to the school and asking them about tutors is really important but if you do get a tutor through another pathway then getting that tutor to have a conversation with the child's teacher again to bring that partnership concept to the fore, is is really important. Then websites like um, the Raising Children website, which has got a huge range of information about health and development, it has some useful information about learning difficulties as well. And increasingly, I think that the Department of Education in each state has, um, has information as well. I know that there's a lot more information on the website uh, under the area Children with Additional Needs than they used to be, so it's 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 quite quite useful now. What the Department of Education has on their website as well. So I would explore a number of websites, and um, always with the thought of what is it about my child? What what do I have in mind? What does my child need? Rather than be driven to, by any of the websites to say this is what you should do, it's what's good for my child. What can I find out? from this website, what might be helpful to my child.
0: Absolutely. So we'll link those websites in our show notes today.
1: And we talked about how this is often a long journey and it's year on year and learning differences, if you like, something that people carry for a lifetime often. What sort of supports can parents have to help them on this journey with their
0: child?
2: Well, I think that um, some of those sorts of of supports will come through some of those websites that we've spoken before because... Uh, the Learning Difficulties Association or SPELD or Ospelts often have parent information nights and, you know, they learn, they can right. meet other parents who are having the same sort of problems. They could also form a group through school, if um, like a support group. for the, There's always, as I said before, 15% of children in a primary school are having some sort of difficulty with learning. Something like 3 or 4% will have what we might call a specific learning disability. So you could use the school to have some group Work and sort of some discussion about what's what's helpful, but also I think parents looking back at their own history. There's some genetic issues in learning difficulties, and sometimes the father or the mother says, "Oh yes, I was like that as a child." And it's interesting; they actually get their kids sometimes. The ones who've had learning difficulties themselves as a child will really more you know underneath really get what the kid's going through. And if they can say, "Look, I had you know it was like that for me too." and school was difficult and I had to work and this and that and the other, but look at me now, you know, I've grown up, I've got a job, I've got a family, I've got you for my child, how lucky am I? And and their children will learn. It might be slower, it might be a different pathway, but they will learn over time and I think that's one of the things that's really important to emphasise. So
1: uh, we've talked about how important that relationship with the school is, Jill. What about situations where it's not working well and parents might be thinking about changing schools?
2: Well, I think the first thing to do in that situation is to really explore why it's not working well and see if if it can be repaired. I've met parents who feel as if the school has done absolutely nothing for their child. And if you talk to the school, they've really put a lot of work and resources into it. So trying to repair that relationship, I think, is the first thing to do. Um, the, but when you think about changing schools, you've really got to be careful about what you're changing to. First of all, there may not be a lot of flexibility depending on where you live. There may yes. not be... You know, the schools may have very geographic boundaries that you you can't do much about anyhow. But given that there is an option to change schools, you need to be very clear that a different school will add something for your childhood that, that he or she is not getting at the current school. So it's got to be a very carefully thought through process. But I think for some children it can be um, a very significant, um, make a very significant difference to to them.
1: And perhaps a related issue is the idea of repeating a year and that often comes up at that transition time, perhaps from kindergarten into school um, and then also again from primary school into high school.
2: Mm. Look, in general, I think grade repetition is not, an automatic choice. And I think there's a lot of evidence to show that grade repetition may improve the outcome for the child in the next year or so, but if you look five or ten years ahead, it may not make much difference and may make things more difficult if they're outside their natural peer group. So it needs a very careful decision. Doing another year of preschool can sometimes be valuable for children who are genuinely just less mature, perhaps language delayed, plus perhaps socially immature. They're not quite ready to go into that classroom environment. But if a child has a, a learning difficulty or a specific learning disability, repeating a year is not going to make that go away and everything's going to be all right. No. They're still going to have a learning disability in 12 months' time. So the balance between consolidating at a particular year level and then... You know, having to make a new group of friends or feeling bad about being kept back—all of these, those sorts of things, have to be taken into account. So, I think it's a very careful decision, and not one that I that that I would uh, often recommend. In terms of between primary and secondary school, again, I think there's a small group of children who are just still—they're like little kids. They haven't started to make that gap to becoming an adolescent. And um, so that's sort of a social and often a social and emotional issue as well as whatever their learning is at. So, again, a careful decision. But if the decision is made to repeat a child, there has to have particular purpose in mind. It's not just another year of school. There has to be some goals set. What are we trying to achieve? And you have to realise that not all is going to be perfect the following year, absolutely. So have
0: realistic expectations and work yes. together with the school to really set some specific goals and have explicit teaching. Yes. With the older children, we're starting to talk a lot about assistive technology. What's your view on that, and what's the role of that in the school and
2: at home? Well, I think that, you know the capacity of assistive technology is just broadening as you know as we speak. Totally, it's, it's amazing what's available now compared to just a few years ago. And I think it's really critical that we use assistive technologies appropriately. So this might be um, voiced text. It might be using a writing pen. Um, it might be using spell check. There's many, many other assistive technologies as well. Allowing children to type instead of write if writing well, is really difficult for yeah, them. And I think that's them. not just for secondary school kids. That's for primary school children. Yes. Because I've always thought that as from about grade three onwards really, The way children are asked to demonstrate their knowledge at school is by writing it down, whether it's in the classroom or for exams or tests, exams later on. And for the children who have difficulty writing, this really gets in the way of demonstrating their knowledge. So being able to speak about what they know or for someone else to transcribe it or to to be able to learn to type it... Is, is really critical. And if you use typing, it takes out a lot of the mechanical things that are difficult about writing, which aren't all that important. The other thing is if you've been trying to learn to spell and by the age of, I don't know, 9 or 10 or 11, you still can't spell. Well, for goodness sake, use and a spell check. check. That's
1: right. And I think some parents go, but isn't that cheating? Yeah, no, and well, they that... sort of feel like, you know, and on, on they might make their child feel like that's cheating.
2: Yeah. Well, I've got a good, a good answer to that. What I say in that sort of circumstances is that, If your child is deaf and you get hearing aids, that's not cheating to learn to to, to be able to listen. And the teacher doesn't say, take out that hearing aid and just try harder. Yes. So if you've got an assistive technology that genuinely makes a difference to a a genuine problem... I think it's the same thing. I think it's I think it's wrong not to use it and I think it's wicked to take it away.
1: And in the end, we're learning for life.
2: The world will look very different when these kids have grown up.
1: So
0: true.
2: Absolutely.
1: That's probably a great note to finish on, actually. It's been an incredibly helpful discussion, Jill. Um, lots of things that parents can take away there on this, what can be a really challenging journey for kids who have learning difficulties. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you.
1: Well, that's been a big conversation. There's a lot in there for people listening and that's because learning difficulties is a complicated area and there's really no simple fix for kids who are having these troubles. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, take a look at the resources in the show notes and even better, leave us a review. Hopefully we've left you with something interesting and helpful to think about and maybe even share with a friend.
0: Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace,
2: discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.